It's my privilege this morning to introduce our convocation speaker, Professor Becky Pennington. Dr. Rebecca Pennington serves as Professor of Education here at Covenant College and has been a member of our faculty since 2002. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Education and a Master of Education with specialization in integrated curriculum and instruction, both from Covenant College. She earned her Doctorate of Education in Learning and Leadership from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Prior to joining the faculty, Dr. Pennington taught for a number of years in the elementary and middle school, in elementary middle schools, both in the Chattanooga area and in Naples, Florida. She now teaches in Covenant's undergraduate and graduate education programs. In addition, she serves as the Director of Assessment for the college's teacher education program, and she chairs the Faculty Curriculum Committee and the Core Oversight Committee. She's married to Tucker Pennington, whom she met at Covenant, Marriage Mill on the Hill. <laughs> and they have two daughters, Hannah and Aubriana, both of whom are also Covenant College alumni. Uh, though she is often teased by her colleagues for her love of rubrics, <laughs> she is a respected member of the faculty, a student and a master of the teacher's craft, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and a lot of fun. Uh, would you please join me in welcoming Professor Becky Pennington? President Halverson, President, uh, Vice President Hall, Cabinet members, Board of Trustees for inviting me to speak today. I love convocation and even before I get inside that door, I listen for the roar, I heard it today, student cheers and I look for the costumes. Where are the brown robes of brethren? Ah! Catacombs? Ghetto, where are you? <laughs> All right, now, uh, ladies, do we have a hall dressed up? Yeah, you guys gotta work on that. All right, so at convocation, a sense of nostalgia sweeps over me, a bit like it does when I walk into Carter Hall Lobby. I think if someone blindfolded me and set me in the Great Hall, I would know where I was just by the smell. <laughs> it takes me back to the 17-year-old me, Becky Emmons, who showed up here in August of 1978. Pretty sure I had the world by the tail. I had no idea then how my time here would shape me and force me to ask an ancient human question. Who am I? I've titled my talk today, Chocolate Cake and the Day I Learned I Was a Horrible Person. <laughs> my three siblings already knew this, no doubt, but I was clueless. Our family's old brown station wagon deposited me and my few belongings on the veranda at orientation. And by fall break, I had fallen into unrequited love earned my first C on a test, and discovered that my new classmates didn't necessarily appreciate my Pollyanna view of the world. Enter the chocolate cake. Halfway through September, on my 18th birthday, 
a sweet friend baked me a scrumptious chocolate birthday cake. Though we'd known each other only three weeks, she clearly intended to ease my homesickness and help me celebrate a milestone. Aw, oh, thank you. Let's eat some would have been an appropriately grateful response. But that's not what came out of my mouth. No, in fact, what I said was, thanks, that's sweet, but do you mind if I don't eat any of it? I'm on a diet. <laughs> no, really, I said that. She stared at me incredulously, but quickly recovered, lowered her head and mumbled something like, Sure, if that's what you want, and I didn't mean to tempt you. I just wanted to help you celebrate your birthday. At that moment, some shred of empathy showed up, and the appalling realization that I was a horrible, terrible person crashed in waves over my head. Who says something like that? Who throws a gift back in the face of the giver? Me, that's who. My brain screamed, what were you thinking, you selfish monster? A pang of pain pierced my conscience, splintering the armor of my identity as the good girl, the smart girl, the one who always pleases. It wouldn't be the last time that year and in the years ahead that some failure would force that same self-interrogation. Who am I? What kind of a person does that? At some point, we all ask, who am I? The answer to this question lies at the heart of our identity, forging our sense of self as significant, valuable, and worthy of regard. The Covenant College purpose statement lays out the lofty goal that students here should make significant progress toward maturity in the area of identity in Christ. Our newly developed for learning outcome number one is more specific. I know my colleagues would have been very disappointed if I did not include the core learning outcome, so here we go. Each student will develop a sense of significance as a multidimensional person created in the image of God. But what does that mean? What does identity in Christ mean and how might one make progress towards such an aspiration? Isn't that rather vague, or even worse, a touch messianic? Academics across disciplines have produced numerous works exploring the question of human identity formation and conceptions of the self. Some even echo Mr. George Banks' jubilant exchange with old banker Mr. Dawes in the classic movie Mary Poppins. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Mary Poppins was right, how extraordinary. It does make you feel better. <laughs> what are you talking about, man? There's no such word. Oh yes, it's a word, a perfectly good word. Actually, do you know what there's no such thing as? It turns out, with due respect, when all is said and done, that there's no such thing as you. Rigorous scholarly investigation of human personhood is a worthy endeavor. But today I offer four common aspects of identity drawn from our everyday lived experiences. They are name, body, role, and community. 
Even young children understand that they have a name, inhabit a physical body, play various roles, and belong to a group. Each of these factors contributes to our sense of who we are. Reflecting on these human ways of being may help us live more faithfully as people who find their identity in Christ. First, let's consider what's in a name. Hi, I'm Becky Pennington. This is how I usually introduce myself to new acquaintances. In a different setting, I might say, hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Pennington. In 1978, I said, hi, I'm Becky Emmons. My husband, Tucker, reminds me that he used to call me mean old Becky Emmons. But when you've grown up with a name like Tucker, well, enough said. <laughs> you freshmen have probably repeated your name a hundred times since move-in day. Our names represent our identities to such an extent that we purchase insurance to protect what is essentially a precious commodity, owned as a possession that can be stolen or tarnished. Pronouncing or spelling someone's name correctly denotes respect for the person, and mispronouncing a name can prove embarrassing in social situations. Most of us have probably Googled our name to discover our digital footprint. No, don't do it now. Dr. Madwemi won't be happy. Our name shapes each of us from birth, and parents comb baby name books for that perfect moniker to bestow upon their infant envisioning success and hoping for happiness for each new child. So how might pondering the importance of a name spur our growth toward identity in Christ? In scripture, names held great meaning, and God sometimes changed someone's name to indicate a coming change in character. Abraham became, or Abram became Abraham, the father of many nations, and Sarai became Sarah, confirming God's covenant with his people. Naomi the beautiful wished to be called Mara the bitter, yet God blessed her with a new family. Simon, unsure and unstable, became Peter the rock. Jesus, our shepherd, knows each of his sheep by name, and as new creatures in Christ, we are given a new name, a new identity. Our names are written in the book of life, and because of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, we are part of the joyful assembly, the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. To find identity in Christ is to claim his name. A second source of human identity formation is physical appearance. We are beings with bodies. You know what I mean that pimple that pops up just in time for prom, or the muffin top you're hoping no one notices in the gym. I have a love-hate relationship with my body, and I've been on a diet since at least fourth grade. <clears throat> no doubt, the offending chocolate cake in my opening story threatened my pursuit of being skinny, a relentless, if unattainable, goal. After a well-meaning hallmate, pointed out to me that first fall at Covenant that boys don't want to marry fat girls. True story. The body shaming only deepened. Three sources of healing materialized to bolster my sense of identity in Christ, and I share them with you now in a spirit of hope. 
first freshman PE, now known as PE 152, required aerobic points to get a good grade. Hmm. Driven as I was by grades, even a B was not an option. And I discovered I loved aerobic dance. Yes, that 80s skate night, shiny tights, big hair kind. Second, I married a man who loves my body <clears throat> and with whom I came to experience the pleasures of intimacy in marriage. Finally, <clears throat> the birth of my two beautiful daughters awakened in me a new appreciation for the amazing machine my body truly is. At this moment, they're probably thinking, TMI, Mom. <laughs> we truly are fearfully and wonderfully made. I apologize if this has made some of you uncomfortable. Such talk is often taboo. It would be difficult to overstate the extent to which our culture devotes resources to outward beauty and fitness. Confusing questions about body image, including race and gender identity and nudity in art, challenge Christians to develop a robust theology of embodiment. If a covenant education is to develop a sense of, of identity in Christ, we need to focus more attention on what it means to be flesh and blood image bearers, indwelt by Christ. From 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. In addition to owning a name in a physical form, we each fulfill many different roles. Our third point, who am I? I'm mom, wife, daughter, professor, friend, student, and more. I find myself claiming to wear many hats. Now, I put this in here before he showed up with his a reference to the multiple categories in which I am expected to function productively. I love this funny hat. Took a long time to get it. For example, it represents my place in the academy and the collegiality I share as a covenant professor. I've been known to wear other head coverings, such as a princess tiara one. <laughs> Fancy Nancy visits my reading class. <laughs> Last Friday, President Halverson spoke of our various little sea callings, one way to envision the parts that we play in the drama of daily living. He also spoke of something dubbed a big sea calling here at Covenant, our calling to be part of God's family, adopted as beloved daughters and sons. Today's ceremony, convocation, invites you to wear your own scholar hat, to join our community of scholars whose purpose is to make visible Christ's preeminence in all things. We ask you to explore with us the particular vocation of study and scholarship that is characteristic of an institution of higher learning and to do it in the light of God's revelation in his word, his world, and his son, Jesus Christ. For me, the story of the chocolate cake was soon followed by a more sinister story 
one of bakeries and bread crusts, and it illustrates a fourth and final aspect of identity, living in community. In the summer of 1980, between my second and third year at Covenant, I joined a short-term mission team serving in Belgium whose task was to support local missionaries by running family camps. I ended up at Belgian Bible Institute with the dubious title of dishwashing supervisor. For five days a week, I scraped scraps of food off plates, mopped floors, and reset tables three times a day. After the third layer of skin peeled off, I didn't even attempt to wear gloves. <clears throat> Sunday was reserved for worship and rest, but for one glorious day each week, I wandered the streets and cities of Belgium. Above all other things, <clears throat> I loved sampling the inventions of the Belgian bakers. Luscious buttercream and flaky pastry supplemented the more plebeian fare of the camp dining hall. Supper often consisted of crusty bread sprinkled with butter and sugar accompanied by soup. Apparently, I frequently offered to eat the buttery crusts of my fellow diners. Seriously, what was I thinking? Food seems to be emerging as a theme here. Sadly, I hadn't even realized I was doing this until our team's farewell social, Cease, our missionary leader, had painstakingly crafted a special award for each of us. Uh-huh. Mine was a bread crust glued to a piece of cardboard. Needless to say, the perceptions of my team formed of me that summer didn't match the Becky Emmons I had constructed in my mind. The point of this rather ridiculous but true story is that all of us carry around in our heads a conception of our own personalities, but we need each other to form a healthy self-concept. The responses of others to our actions can reveal our hearts. When my cake-baking friend's crestfallen face showed her hurt, and my mission teammate's laughter pointed out my weird addiction to bread crusts, I concluded, I'm a terrible person. Yet it was within the safe embrace of both Covenant and my mission team that I began to take risks and recognize that my failures and performances, even the good ones, didn't define me, but my worth was found in Christ. A loving community nursed me back to health, so to speak. Unlike the first three aspects of identity, which centered on the individual, this final concept questions the existence of an isolated self, locating the source of personal identity in relationship with others. In fact, one view of human personhood agrees with George Banks that there really isn't such a thing as you. Not that you don't exist, but the self you imagine is more a product of your identification and belonging to a group than the result of some inherent essence or a set of characteristics that make you, you. From Kenneth Gergen's relational being to the ideas of intersectionality and anti-essentialism, social construction as theories of identity locate the self primarily within a group, if they leave it intact at all. 
Like the proverbial tale of the elephant being investigated by the blind men, our elephant, the sense of identity rooted in Christ that a covenant education aims to develop, sports seemingly different appendages, depending on what piece of him you happen to have in your hand. Seen from one angle, human beings are individual creatures, unified wholes with worth and value on their own. David praises God in Psalm 139.13, declaring, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. But seen from another angle, each of us is but one body part, a foot or a hand or an eye, useless when cut off from the whole. The familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 12, read by Professor Nelson, eloquently argues this point. Certainly, our identity in Christ cannot be understood as merely some sort of therapeutic force helping us to find our true selves, but must be conceived of corporately in relationship to one another, a picture of the triune God. Scripture offers various collective metaphors to help us. We are a body with many parts, a vine with branches, a royal priesthood, and a chosen generation. Our covenant relationship is one where God unconditionally keeps his promises to his redeemed people, the universal church. In conclusion, let's return to the chocolate cake and the awful apparition my outburst conjured up for me. The light of God's truth can dissipate that ghost. Who am I? I'm a human being created in God's image, and my heavenly Father knows my name. I am a human body, in some mysterious way a temple or dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. I am a human agent, actively at work in the world to faithfully carry out my callings. I am a human person, valuable, loved, but not alone. I am part of a community of believers eagerly waiting for the restoration of all things. Revelation 21 comforts us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. <clears throat> he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. In the weeks ahead, we may face a fiend in the mirror who shouts, Who does that? Who are you? May our shepherd's gentle voice quiet that beast, and may we, alone and together, find our identity in Christ. Thank you.